2: Good evening and welcome to another edition of Today with Dr. Wendy. I'm Wendy Patrick. My co-host Larry Dersham and I, as always, have really whittled through the headlines to try to find not only the important stories, but also some important stories that really have some impact for us here in San Diego as well as across the nation. And one of the things that we now find upon us is winter weather. Now, winter weather, of course, means something very different for us here in San Diego than it does for the rest of the nation. And we may be lamenting the drop in temperatures to gas below 60 degrees overnight, although I would make the argument we've actually had some pretty cold nights uh, lately. However, winter weather means something very different for people that live in other parts of the country. And sadly, they grapple with winter weather, disaster, and death. And front and center in that analysis this past week has been the Kentucky Candle Factory. There actually now is a class action, a lawsuit that has been filed against Mayfield Consumer Products on behalf of the candle factory workers. Remember that deadly tornado that literally ripped that building to shreds. It condensed it to rubble. You saw the before and after pictures, hard to watch, hard to listen to. Um, And we also know that eight precious lives were lost, snuffed out, so to speak, prematurely, and our prayers are with that community. Uh, And and it's one of those disasters that, according to the lawsuit, or at least what we expect to hear in court, may have been preventable. And, you know, Larry, you and I follow these class action lawsuits that stem from so many different um, tragedies. There's really no other way to classify something like this. Is there anything about this that is maybe unusual or, or unique to this setting, I mean I'll cue us up with one with one obvious one. This was a lifeline in terms of employing so many residents in this area of Kentucky. So the fact that you know maybe it didn't have a storm shelter or it should have had a storm shelter, or the employees should have been sent home when there's this di- dispute as to whether they were told they could leave or not, you know there's a lot of sort of unique aspects that might make this one different.
3: Yeah, the Mayfield Consumer Products Factory uh, the spokesperson, in fact, he's. Uh, I think the uh, his name is Bob Ferguson, and he said that uh, we have had a policy in place since COVID began that employees can leave at any time they want to leave, and they can come back the next day. But according to witnesses right there in the factory, before it was hit by the tornado, The word was that they were not allowed to leave. They were working 24-7 because of Christmas, because they shipped these candles, these scented candles, uh, all over the, the shopping malls, all over the world, and they were just trying to meet demand. And the word is that they wouldn't let them go home, despite all the warnings that these people were getting on their phones, the sirens were going off. What would you do in that case? What a frightening situation.
2: Oh, can you even imagine hearing that weather siren? I mean, it is devastating enough for the people that were in that factory, but even us hearing it, there's like vicarious trauma when you hear that siren and you know, can you you only imagine what went through their minds? It's a very different scenario, Larry, than if we had an earthquake here because you can't predict earthquakes. You don't have a siren. You don't get an alert. uh, And that's why we all grew up with those drills, getting under our desks or whatever else. But what do you do when you have advance notice? That's no doubt going to be one of the issues here because an employer can't force you to choose between your safety and your salary. It's also, however, not the case that there was a mandatory evacuation order. That would have made it maybe a much cleaner case because nobody disputes that an employer cannot force an employee to work in violation or in contravention of a lawful government order. But here you point out a really interesting point that will probably be a big part of the litigation. The company denies the charges. They say you mentioned the covid policy. They say not only was that in effect. But it was in effect this week, and there was nothing about that policy that would be simply narrowly interpreted as to being something related to COVID. So when you have uh, the amount of employees that are saying it was insinuated, uh, we were told, we believed, they're going to have to nail that down and make sure that there was something that was actually said, That at least that'll be the legal argument, um, because the company is saying that they did or said nothing. But here's another aspect of this that i thought um is going to be significant in court you are correct they were working around the clock to meet the christmas demand um it's also correct that the mayfield consumer products factory was the third biggest employer in that corner of western kentucky so this was an economic engine that will no doubt impact the salaries of everybody that worked there who are now out of a job to what extent do we expect the lack of a storm shelter, lack of an adequate uh, place to hide or to, to take shelter that was fortified enough to withstand that damage? To what extent would the failure to take those precautions uh, enter into this lawsuit?
3: Right. Well, there are a number of acts that uh, protect workers. One is called the Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970. There's also the National Labor Relations Act of 1935 and as well there's a Kentucky revised statutes that says that if there's a safety violation and you discriminate against an employee for reporting that safety violation the, you know you those employees are protected so the fact that they would even intimate that if you leave today you don 't return you 're fired basically, and what 's also interesting uh, about this, Wendy, I discovered that there were some prisoners, some like they allow prisoners to work in this factory as well as some people I think under contract from Puerto Rico, so it was a really interesting mix of people, but they all deserve to be protected and I can just imagine all those warnings going out over the airwaves, you know you, everybody tunes in their radio or their TVs and severe storm on its way on its way, and then all and it got more um, severe as it, 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 it came. So I'm just uh, can't believe that they had to stay there. What a dilemma for those people.
2: Well, a dilemma for the people and also no doubt a dilemma for the employers yes. because they probably were in the same position. I mean, you know, they have loved ones at home too. They didn't want to be there. That's why when you have dueling narratives that are this far apart, you almost have to go to court. You know, this isn't kind of like, well, maybe there was sort of a a middle ground. These, things, these statements were either said or they weren't. Um, here's another aspect of the story that has people talking all over the country, because you remember everybody has their own unique, natural disasters, so to speak, many of which are foreseeable because you get the warnings in advance. But at-will employment really has taken a a center seat um, with the discussion of this story because there are many states where it's mostly at-will employment. And at-will means exactly what it sounds like it might mean, but it can't be discriminatory. And so as different places analyze their policies, you know, we always think that other companies are probably analyzing their policies in connection with looking at what happened here in Kentucky simply to make sure that they're adequately informed, protected, protected, um, and that their employees and empl- and the managers are are trained in what exactly you would do if this happened, um, but you know it's also not true that this was something that could be done remotely. I mean, you can't remotely make a candle much in the same way if you have a computer job and you have bad weather warnings. There are workarounds and options. For employees and managers alike, where they don't have to stay in a dangerous, uh, dangerous position. But Larry, here's another question that's kind of circling uh, around this issue: Would the company have worried about facing liability in with an impending storm system if they sent those employees home? I mean, unless they live like a mile away, uh, there's some question, or maybe it might be a part of the litigation. You know, what do you do? Is there Is there something, and I understand ultimately it's about foreseeability and reasonableness, but how does that factor into the fact that you had the first storm warning at 5.30, it seemed like it passed, and then 9 o'clock, here it really comes. How is that going to factor into what both sides are going to argue in court?
3: Right. Well, I think they're going to argue that. I think I've even read some commentary on that, that some of the management is saying that we were afraid to send them home because this storm was getting increasingly dangerous. And to just put them out in the parking lot in their cars driving uh, down the highway could be more dangerous. But then you'd come back and say, well, they didn't have a storm uh, shelter, apparently. And this is kind of interesting, too. I don't know if many people know that, that the uh, storms are have been developed and that are rated by the wind speed and the severity of the damage. And it was a gentleman by the name of Ted Fujita. He's also known as Mr. Tornado. Well, Mr. Tornado was raised in Japan. He was a couple miles away from the atomic bomb dropped on Nagasaki when he was a little kid, and he was always interested in the damage caused by uh, events like storms and so forth. So he developed this thing, and it's called the um, the F-scale, and now it's called the Enhanced Fujitsu uh, uh, system. And basically, if it's an EF rating of five, those are wind speeds sustained over a, a se- three-second gust of over 200 miles an, an hour. And it's predicted that the wind speeds of this tornado that hit that factory were between an EF rating 4 and an EF 5. So that's 166 miles an hour up to over 200 miles an hour. So it totally, if you've seen pictures, leveled it, leveled that factory. So tragic to watch.
2: Yeah, you know, tragic is right. And we can only hope that we can learn from tragedies like this. Uh, One of the, and this will be my final point because we're almost out of time, but one thing we always notice about stories like this is what were the odds that a tornado this powerful would hit in this area? You know, I mean, you know, we don't don't have a storm shelter here at the station. We don't worry that, you know, a tornado is going to rip through the building. Uh, But should we? And the answer would probably be no, because it's never happened. But in that area of Kentucky, you can imagine both sides are arguing foreseeability as well. Um, So we promise you we're going to have a little more uplifting second half, but we need to take a short break. Stick with us for our next segment. We have a very special guest who is a leader in proposing new school initiatives. You don't want to miss this. So don't touch that radio preset. We'll be back in a flash. You're listening to Today with Dr. Wendy. well, we always promise you an uplifting, fun, interesting second half guest, and today is no different. Larry, who do we have on the line?
3: Sure, Wendy. We have Mark Ang. He's a community uh, community organizer in Southern California and the founder of Asian Industry B2B. Mark is also the leading proponent of the school choice initiative in our state and is currently working on a new book titled Minority Retort that will be out in early 2022. Welcome to the show, Mark.
4: Thank you so much, Wendy. Thank you, Larry, for having me. I appreciate you guys.
2: Mark, it's such a catchy name for your book, and obviously we'll uh, we'll get more into it. But one of the things that I know about you is you are, as you would describe, an obsessed animal lover. I mean, we all love animals, so we love that about you. Um, I also know you actually have your dog, Pugsley, with you right now, and one of the interesting things we were talking about before the show is um, Pugsley. As I understand it, is actually sort of a designer breed. He is part pug and part beagle. And Larry, I know you've had these designer breeds as well. Um, are, are, have you always been an animal lover, and is this uh, is this kind of one of the reasons you care so much about being pro-family? I mean, we all know our dogs are every bit as much a part of the family as everybody else.
4: <laughs> At least they think so. I think. That dogs uh, teach you how to love on a different level. It's that unconditional love that they give us, and they're only here for a short amount of time, so it really teaches you the value of life and seizing the moment. Um, yes, uh, I've always been an animal lover. Um, my Interestingly, growing up, my parents are not animal lovers, but I grew to that, you know, when I was on my own as an adult, and, you know, I've had many great dogs since. But, um, yes, absolutely. Uh, dogs enhance the family unit big time. Oh, for
2: sure. I, you know, it's I'm reading your um, you've got a great bio. You have just you've done so many things, and that love of family. That uh, it's interesting. You say you kind of learn a little bit about how you love your pets. Um, you have been very active in founding the Asian industry B2B. Part of that has to do with really uplifting the Asian communities in Southern California through pro business and pro family activities and initiatives. Mm -hmm. I was wondering, how did you get involved in this school choice initiative that's being spearheaded? by the California Education Freedom uh, Act Initiative organization. How did you get involved in that?
4: Absolutely. So what happened is, um, you know, AIB2B, my organization, started in 2017, and I saw a need for an alternate voice in uh, the Asian community and the organizations in Southern California because a lot of them were pushing a lot of things I disagree with. Um, And, you know, I said, hey, it's good, we can all agree. Agree to disagree, but there should be a little bit of airplay to some of, you know, what to a big part of the community that felt shut out by a lot of the existing organizations. And one of those issues was certainly education. Um, the Asians, I think, across the board, whether uh, whatever po- political ideology you are, are all focused on education and the quality of education. And a lot of parents complain about that. My own parents put me through private school because they felt that the public school was inadequate, and that was many decades ago. Now, think about that same dynamic that has been exacerbated over the years, and now we have uh, certainly uh, less attention to quality, like we saw in the last year with the Zoom calls. Um, you know that uh, um, that public schools were forced to you know not meet in person, and parents got to see that. But our journey started in 2019 for the Educational Freedom Act. And if you do a simple Google search online, you'll see that uh, I've been working, my organization has been working with California School Choice run by Mike Alexander since 2019. So for the last three years, we've been organizing the communities beyond Asian, obviously, but on my end, definitely getting a lot of, you know, uh, parent groups. Um, In fact, recently we just protested in Los Alamitos because they had put in critical race theory without the consent or even a vote on the Board of Trustees, which is very brazen, and so we made us think about that. That made uh, L.A. Times and a lot of uh, local papers. So uh, really that started uh, in 2019 when uh, there was a, you know, this school choice initiative was supposed to be released in 2020, but we decided with the presidential election and everything that 2022 would be a better uh, better time to you know, push this, and but we did build uh, the, the the infrastructure for the last two years. Now, the timing couldn't be any better. I mean, you can see all across the country, Loudoun County in Virginia, and you saw what that translated to a win in um, Virginia statewide for the gubernatorial race. So, yes, uh, really, it's come from a frustration in the community, and we just responded to that, hey,
3: Mark. Don't parents already have school choice, but the problem is it's so expensive. So really, the wealthy people can afford to put their kids in private school, but for the rest of us, it's a struggle. So will this act that you're trying to get on the ballot, will that improve things for parents that want to get out of the public school system?
4: Thank you so much, Larry, for asking that question, because that question gets to the heart of the income disparities uh, that we have in society. And what's happened is uh, there are two initiatives that are pushing school choice um, or, you know, the educational savings accounts and, you know, our taxpayer control of uh, where we spend those dollars for education. And um, our initiative is the one that doesn't require means testing or income phase-ins, and that is the heart of everything here because uh, the the more divisions that we create amongst the end users, the taxpayers, is um, not beneficial as a whole for everyone because uh, what happens is people get shut out, people fall between the cracks. Why don't you just make it across the board and just make it, you know, so that everyone has control and more choice and an expanded version of the the menu items, basically. So yes, currently it's so sad because we have, um, sadly, black moms being put in jail for wanting their kids to go to a better school and signing up on their relatives addresses and stuff like that to get you know to get uh, their kids into a better school so this zip code type of discrimination is so so ugly to especially black and Hispanic families and those in you know areas where they're um, you know they're, they have less choices so making this open across the board especially charter schools I mean a lot of parents are willing to drive out hours each day to just get their kids in a better place. And we need to pay tribute to those, and we need to pay tribute to homeschool parents who have the ability or are willing to make the sacrifice of one parent's income a lot of times to have their kids at home and to, uh, you know, educate them at the expense of a second income. Um, and a lot of times they are not wealthy by any means. For example, a family with um, making $100,000 but has six kids, in the end, they have to cut a lot of corn. So this is the type of thing that, you know, a lot of these nuanced issues people are not talking about, and um, we, we just don't like politics. I really joined this initiative because I saw that it was for the grassroots, and it's going to benefit everyone, Republicans, independents, and especially a broad swath of Democrats.
2: That's really interesting that you, you know, kind of bring up how many classes of people are potentially impacted by some of these issues. Um, And I know that, you know, your initiative is trying to see the Education Freedom Act of 2022 turn into law. Um, Just very quickly, isn't there another competing act called the Education Savings Account Act of 2022 Mm -hmm. uh, that also might become law? What's the difference? Uh, Very briefly, we're almost at the end of the show, but I'd love to know how you would distinguish these two.
4: Yeah, and I mentioned some of those just now. So, um, the other one does means testing and also income phase ins. So for a lot of families, they're going to get shut out for many years before they're allowed to, you know, go ahead and be part of this initiative where they can, you know, take their taxpayer dollars and put it in a savings account. So both, uh, both, um, uh, initiatives, uh, establish that educational savings account. And then second of all is the homeschoolers get shut out on the other initiative so um, they require that it's an accredited program and there's a real, you know, very uh, stringent uh, qualifications for a homeschooling parent or homeschooling family to be able to to get into that program. So in those two areas, they're very weak. And then also, you know, ours is 14000 a year. There's a 13, I mean, you know, small differences like that. And also the leadership, the people that are um, involved with our initiative are the grassroots. And it's also a lot of established grassroots. We've been at this forever. Like, you know, I said, even my involvement in in education and school choice has extended before 2019 when we started our formal efforts to gather. And, you know, so there's a lot of us in the community that understand the community issues. That's why we crafted a better initiative that is focused on helping the end user in a meaningful way without government bureaucracy trip it up along the way and along the process of qualification.
3: Hey, Mark, we're almost out of time. But if people want to get involved uh, with your effort to get this on the ballot, how? What's the best way to do that?
4: The best way is to sign up on CaliforniaSchoolChoice.org. And that is an amazing website because uh you can just put in your name to volunteer and, and what's what's great about it is it also asks you how you want to volunteer, then puts you in those buckets and then you will get involved right away and connected to a grassroots effort of a lot of uh, you know, existing moms and dads that Thank are you, Mark. leaders and they will and you will be able to join. Yeah, thank you so much for having. Thank
2: me. you so much for joining us and thank you to our listeners. Have a wonderful safe weekend. Please join us next week for more of Today with Dr. Wendy, Headlines with a Silver Lining. Have a great week and God bless you.